0: A really long time, <laughs> so I'm really glad that you all made it out here tonight, and that there's so many things new and old. Um, it's a special night because it is Lit 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 number 10, and we've now been running Lit for three years, proudly. It all started back in Avenue Studios with Oh gosh, Let's watch that. <laughs> started back at Avenue, when we scrambled to find enough chairs for the like handful of people who came out. And yeah, so it's really come a long way since, since then. Um, my name is Emma, and I run Lit Lit Lit, previously with Steph. Um, for this particular lit, it, Ingrid uh, has helped me put this together, so thank you so much. <laughs> um, who else? I wanted also just a quick thank you to Lindsay and Michael and Christian, who are all here to help set up earlier on, um, as well as Artspeak, who is lending us their space tonight. Uh, both and Eric are amazing and have supported this like so much. And I'm really thankful that we could host a lit here because it's the first time we've done so. And it's <coughs> very fitting. Um, so... Uh, tonight we have four readings that are going to happen. We have readings by Ingrid Uh Where else? Where are you? There you go. Josh Gabbard-Dorian, Anna Seiss and where's Ben? Ben. Ben's ben! He's over there. So we're going to do um, the order. is going to be two, two readers and then a short intermission and then two more readers. Before I get to anything else though I just had a couple of housekeeping things to mention um, so I wanted to acknowledge that this event is <laughs> taking place on the unceded territories of the Musqueam Squamish tsleil Tooth and the Stolo and we are very grateful to be able to have our events on these beautiful lands um, this is also going to be the last lit um, and I say that in such a way where it's not going to completely abolish but it's going to hopefully extend itself to become more in addition to the readings. Um, We are sadly going to be saying goodbye to Stephanie Ling, who has been such an essential component to this event series. And I've really enjoyed and have been super grateful to work with her as an organizer, but also as a friend. And I wish you the best with your future (laughs) pursuits. So with that, I'm also super super excited to announce that Christian Viston and I are going to be taking over Lit, and we are going to be reforming it a little bit. So it's going to have some more uh, public workshops. We're going to do (coughs) some more experimentation with performance-based readings, as well as uh, hopefully some interviews. We'll amp up our podcasts that we run a bit more too. And yeah, so I'm really excited to be taking this to another direction and. Hope you will stick around to join us throughout that. Um, What else? I I guess because it is the last Lit, I also just wanted to thank all of the venues that we have uh, run these events out of. They've been plenty and have all been so generous for giving us these spaces for a temporary night to host us, um, as well as to all of the readers who have read as a part of Lit, uh, friends as well who have just, we couldn't have done it without you. So, thank you. Um, so, I think without further ado... Yes, that's the next part. So, um, tonight, I, you may have noticed that we also have some artworks up here tonight. And these are posters by Lindsey Pomerantz. And Lindsey and Ingrid have recently published a book as a part of their residency that Lindsey and Michael did last summer, now, in Berlin. And so this is the publication that's come out of this, and these are the artworks that are in the publication, and you can take a look at that over at the bar on the side there. It's called Pragmatics, and I believe it's selling for eighteen dollars a night. Uh, in addition to that, Marianne, thank you. Um, yeah. In addition to that, I think I think we can I think we can start. So the order that we're going to go in tonight. Is exactly what sounds like oh is it gonna log into tell us now. Okay. (laughs) Woo! Technology. Um, so we're gonna do it in the alphabetical order actually. So Josh is gonna kick off the night with the presentation here that we're gonna fix in just a second. (laughs) Cool. Okay, so I'm gonna read the bios for for Josh and Ingrid, and then you
1: get to read the bios for the second half. Okay. Okay,
0: cool. So, Josh gabbard Doyen is a writer, art worker, and radio producer living on unceded Coast Salish territory. He is currently completing a fellowship at t one a where he is working on a project that tracks the Woodwards building as a site of political struggle. He works for the art book publisher, Philip and the podcast Cited. And I think, Josh, you've got an event coming up at t one a right? Yeah. On February 27th? 28th. 28th. Okay. Close. Yeah, that has to do with your work that you've been doing there, so. Take note. All right.
2: So let's do this. Josh. OK, we're going to hope for the best with the, uh, (laughs) the presentation. Um, I wanted to start off just by thanking uh, Emma for providing really good edits on this piece, uh, which is a really cool thing that Lit, 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 Lit does, uh, and Steph for um, figuring out uh, or helping with some of the design just to make sure that it wasn't a disaster on this uh, slideshow, um, and Ben, uh, the, the last reader tonight, who's also my roommate, um, and who provided some really good tips on, on reading. Um, so yeah, this is not something, I've, I've uh, not really done readings uh, like this before, um, I'm kind of coming uh, in as, from more of a, a radio uh, background, so um, I guess I'll just, I'll just get into it, um, oh and also ArtSpeak for, for hosting this, they're great. <coughs> so Hannah lives in a cheap two bedroom in a row of cheap apartment buildings spanning about six blocks. She's on the first floor corner apartment with two big windows looking out onto the street. Through that window you can see the house that was burned down last October by a group of kids shooting off fireworks. From another vantage point almost parallel to the window you can look into a cheap pizza place that never seems to be open. Commuters take a bus at the stop outside her window next to a mound of burnt grass which is also visible from that view. What you can't see from the corner windows however is the apartment block directly next to hers. The corresponding first floor corner unit, street facing, rented out by a fortune teller. Hannah had broken her leg a few weeks before, right above the ankle, and the area around the break is bruised and fat. I roll her around in a wheelchair, and we spend most of the the summer in that apartment. In that corresponding first floor corner unit, street facing, there's a cluster of signs obscuring most of the unit's window view. There's a webcam pointed out at the street like a single seeing eye. Buzz for entry, 24-7 fortune telling, late night or midday. Trapped in an endless time loop, always ready to tell the future. There was another sign too, this one in front of the building. A city of Vancouver notice announcing plans for redevelopment. I asked Hannah about it. Did you see the fortune teller sign in the building next door, I say? The building that's going to be demolished? What kind of fortune, psychic, (laughs) moves into a building that's going to be torn down, I say to her. Do you really think it's going to get demolished? doesn't seem like Barry gets foresight on the psychic's part, I say, feeling smug with myself. That night, we make one pot pasta using the last of the spices we can find in Hannah's pantry. When we speculate, does our vision change? In the practice of everyday life, Michel de Certeau writes that in a dense urban space, to catch a glimpse far into the distance, to see the vanishing point is quote, also to be able to predict, to run ahead of time by reading a space. What future can these speculators run ahead to? What fate awaits them? How can these spaces be read head on? For Marx, financial speculation and real estate come hand in hand under what he calls fictitious capital. Fictitious capital is capital which reaps even more capital without actually producing anything of value. Vancouver is like a paper mache balloon, sheet upon sheet of guesswork, flipped properties, condo development, neighborhood neighborhood plan after neighborhood plan promising the next big thing. I start asking people I know about their experiences with psychics. My parents apparently saw a psychic together when they were first dating. Everyone seems to have a story about a psychic, although they only reveal that when prompted. Psychics exist somewhere submerged in our cultural memory. Me and Hannah's friend, Paisley, tells us a story about her old hairdresser who used to read her tarot cards after each appointment. Her readings were accurate, but she moved to, Cal- to Calgary. She has not had any communication with her hairdresser since then. That's the end of the story, Paisley tells us. One afternoon, Hannah comes home with a pamphlet. It's from a psychic, she says. I picked it up for you. She tells me it's from Abraham's on the drive building I had never noticed before. I think the psychic is on contract, he comes in spe- especially to do the readings, maybe when Abraham is unavailable. I resolve to document every psychic in Vancouver. I want to map these buildings, the structures of prediction, to see where they've chosen to go, how they've related to one another. They give a sample of Vancouver's real estate, a landscape driven by speculation. Later that week, I bike to Abraham's and take a picture of the building from across the street. With these photos, I entered a space of fabulation, conjecture, hazard. On several trips to document psychics, I struggled to find the right vantage point. I feel most like a collector while on these trips. Dessertot writes about the vanishing point of the city block, but we could also think of Hausman's boulevards. T- typologies, the kind of merely interesting photo typologies that Nye talks about, that this project inevitably tumbles into, come from a desire to document face first. Stan Douglas's 100 block, kind of frustrated vanishing point, an elongated flatness. Hans Haacke's real-time social system with vertical tenement blocks that appear as if they're tilted backwards. It doesn't feel like I was looking at the depths of these architectural units, looking into their interior. In any case, that would be creepy. Collecting is never really about the interiority of the collected object either. It's about the quantity surface. This was about vantage, the views that Vancouver speculation seems so predicated on. The mountain views, the city views, the ocean views. To find a vantage point is to find a strategic position, a position in relation to other positions. There are more than 25 listed fortune tellers in Vancouver. Many of these psychics operate out of private residences. Others work out of storefronts or nondescript commercial buildings. I photographed the Empress Galleria, 1118 Homer Street, home to a psychic establishment listed under Crystal Palace. Mysteriously, Crystal Palace fails to appear on the Galleria's main directory, although it appears online. A number of counseling offices do show up on the directory, including a popular Lacanian. Psychics seem to find their home in these kind of middle-grade office blocks, while waiting rooms, with waiting rooms and stern hallways, The medieval psychic Nostradamus was an apothecary and was trained as a medical student. According to his followers, Nostradamus predicted that 2018 will include a series of natural disasters in quick succession, a major economic downturn, and the start of World War III. You couldn't tell that from the sign outside of 1118 Homer Street. The hard thing about photographing these psychics was keeping track of all the addresses. Yelp, the Yellow Pages, Google Maps often had contradictory listings. I would jot down addresses and would plan out routes on my bike. Sometimes I would pack a lunch, I would bike down Kingsway and through South Vancouver or do a line through the West End. Most of the addresses were surprisingly suburban. The psychics are often branded along ethnic lines. They usually offer services over the phone as well as in person. The buildings they operate out of tend to be made from modest materials, making the spaces seem temporary, movable even. It's as if they could be shuffled around like a deck of cards. It's impossible to say how many of the addresses associated with these fortune tellers are out of date or inaccurate. Psychics have left or moved or been evicted. Informal rental agreements have fallen through. New buildings have been put up in the place of shabby mid-rises and bloated character homes. Or maybe they've just switched professions. In this way, my documentation remains permanently incomplete. Several included in this slideshow are almost surely misidentified. The plotting of the real estate developer, the the tinkering property owner trying to cash in, the the inheritors of Papa's rental building looking to renovate their tenants. These are the speculators. Housing is a good whose investment will reap rewards. Land sits vacant until speculators decide it's the best time to cash in. I leave Hannah's house and go to photograph these addresses, lugging my bike over her first floor balcony. I visit each site several times over, trying to find a different view, a new detail to lead the way forward. I shoot with different cameras, different film. When I take the photos, I find clues. I spend time enlarging the the photos, looking at the details. The art historian Giovanni Morelli published a book in 1880 titled The Work of the Italian Masters. He published the book under a pseudonym and translated himself under a pseudonym as well. In that book, Morelli argues that the best way to determine whether a painting was authentic was to focus on small anatomical details, earlobes, fingernails, the curvature of a toe, rather than dramatic gestures and bold techniques. The details were more challenging to fake. At the location listed for Cassandra McLean, psychic numerologist, I can't seem to find the street address. The numbers of the address are absent. This feels intentional. Other details, a green cone that taps the front end of the sports car, the indentation of the car mirror on the car cover, these psychic residences appear shapely, geometrical, The rope that hangs from the roof of the building that seems to ground the structure in the land. The details start to appear as solid as a dream. The Duncan Building is the only heritage building occupied by a psychic. A website for equitable real estate investment corporation limited, who owned the building, write that it was completed in 1912, quote, at the height of the early 20th century building boom. Do these psychics gravitate to historical sites of speculation? How would we consider a built history of speculation? How would we see a city's past through speculation? From one of these windows with tilted blinds or with distorted glare of the streetlights, a medium looks down on the street. It was clear to me by now that these psychics were not owners or landlords in any sense. These psychics labored under speculation and their speculation was a sort of toil. Their relationship to the real estate speculator was one of antagonism. For the psychic I was documenting, speculation was work, a service, something to be produced. The fortune teller inhabits the living ruins of a struggle to make ends meet. It was the bourgeois speculator on one end, the psychic on another. On its face, Vancouver's connection to financial industries is meager. We have a fast-growing financial tech sector which develops apps for banking. Vancouver's business district is a hub for extraction companies, especially mining mining corporations. Something like 75% of the world's mining companies have headquarters in Vancouver. The historical rhythms here could be traced to the gold rush, a kind of mad speculative dash in its own right. From colonial extraction, accumulation becomes financialized. Today, Canada's laid-back regulation has made it easy for the companies to list on the TSX, to avoid paying taxes, and to carry out human rights violations abroad. Not surprisingly, there are no psychics listed in Vancouver's business district. I'm having coffee near Canby Street when I get a sign, a handbill given to me by a passing pedestrian doesn't look like he's carrying a stack of these handbills, or that he's operating in any official distribution capacity. He simply passes me one. The neon handbill advertises psychic on Broadway. The more I consider speculation, the more everything seems tied up in it. Even the most mundane marketing techniques feel like prophecy. Me and Hannah take a cab to a friend's house. We put the wheelchair in the back. I tell her about getting the handbill. I'd go a psych- to a psychic with you. Sure, let's do it, she says. I don't know. I do not even think about going in for a session. Didn't even think about going in for a session. We can't go as a couple. They'll make it all cheesy, like couples therapy. We'll tell them straight off the bat that we're brother and sister. That would be the way to do it. The cab driver laughs. But the psychic would know your brother and sister. They're psychic. <laughs> well, that's how we'll see if she's any good, I say from the back of the They're all fake anyway, says the driver. There's only one good one. What's her name? Cynthia? Sylvia? The one on TV. Is this a daytime TV show, like a a Judge Judy psychic? Yeah, I I don't know. I don't believe that stuff. Ghosts, UFOs, zombies. But sometimes she'll say stuff and I'll really think, how did she know? (laughs) When we get out of the Prius, the cab driver unloads the wheelchair from the back and turns to me. Samantha, that's it. That's her name. It still, feels, it still feels like a wild guess on his part. Who are the great fortune tellers? Pythia, the oracle of Delphi. Tiresias, the blind prophet of Thebes; Samantha, from daytime television. <laughs> Who are the soothsayers we turn to today? Who can guide us forward to our future? For a period of time, I only take my photos at night with a flash. I can't remember where I adopted the logic for this decision. But it feels important that the photos were at night, away from the daytime wheeling and dealing of the speculative market. We never end up going to the psychic on Broadway, but I photograph the building, and when I do, there's a rental sign in the top window. The photo comes out dull. Are these psychics grifters? Maybe, although I'm not sure it matters much. When we take a long view, it seems like it might all be falling apart, shedding itself slowly for decades now. The city that sells it's inexperience, it's openness, seems to have cracks forming. I feel them in the sidewalk when I push Hannah's wheelchair back to the rental place. She's on crutches now, a lot nimbler. I try to write an article for, youth cult- for a youth culture magazine. It's about a photo competition celebrating up and coming British photographers. I write about fortune telling and use a misarticulated metaphor about the camera lens as a crystal ball. Youth culture is a cult of divination, a maddening attempt to know what will happen next. Or maybe that's just the art world. If the editor thought it would do well on socials, I'd write that fortune telling is a dance around death, that all speculation is a desperate attempt to figure out what happens when the grift is done. Months pass, the city changes. The photograph lets us gaze into the future. It's a tool of information gathering. From its indexical origins, it becomes algorithmic and predictive. The photograph is caught between the past and the future, recounting and supposing all at once. The medium sitting at a table with a crystal ball, transmitting messages sent from the other side, ghosts of the past who command the future. In Dante's Inferno, we arrive at the fourth ring of the Eighth Circle of Hell, reserved for the fortune tellers and oracles. Dante cries for the sinners who have their heads glued on backwards to punish them for trying to see into the future. They march slowly, their tears streaming down their back. But consider this fate. Their gazes are turned towards the past. The psychic confronts history. Maybe that's for the best. It's only through history that we can work our way through crisis. Only by historicizing that we can catch glimpses of the way forward. To have faith in these psychics is to speculate our futures here, to imagine new structures. Nearly a year after I began documenting psychic structures in Vancouver, the development permit sign at the building next to Hannah's is taken down without warning. It's been 18 months now, almost two years, and the building is still standing. Hannah's leg is better. Malay still operates out of the first floor corner apartment. There's nothing to indicate that the building was ever condemned nothing to indicate that the psychic on the first floor corner apartment might have made a good bet. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Josh, that was great. Okay, so next up, Ingrid Lawson is a writer living in Burnaby. She attended Emily Carr University from 2010 to 2015 and is working on her first novel. Her poetry chapbook, Pragmatics, with images by Lindsay Pomerantz, was published this month. Pragmatics was written for Sleepover, a collaborative residency project organized by Lindsay Pomerantz and Michael Lockman in Berlin, Germany, 2017.
3: Okay, so um, I want to start out by saying um, I'm really excited about this 10th lit, 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 lit. Um, each one I've been to has been really memorable, so thanks, Steph and Emma, for facilitating over the last three years. Um, and I'm really excited about everyone who's reading today. Um, so, as Emma mentioned, I'm going to be reading from this chapbook called Pragmatics that I made with Lindsay, who's over here. Um, Lindsay made these um, posters that are featured in the book. Um, and they were first installed in an exhibition in Berlin in the summer. Um, and this book is designed by Ben Stevenson, who's in the back and he's reading today as well. And then after I'm done that, I'm going to read an excerpt from a novel in progress, which doesn't have a title yet. So the book's called Pragmatics. And I have an epigraph here by Natalie Sorote that goes, like some precise dramatic action shown in slow motion, these movements which I call tropisms come into play. The Sleeper. A uniform that expresses abandon, if that is the right word, the right dress. There must be a slogan to look apart. I purchased an instinct to preserve the future, but habits weaken gradually. The muscles become bulky. It takes decades, the undoing inexpertly massaging the lactic acid. Leave the shirt, folded with care, at the bottom of the dresser drawer, its arms wrapped around itself in an origami hug. And the snake, a cluster of threads spilling out from a navy blue hollow. Oh, how deceptive, as if it wanted to hide away in a cupboard. It was out of a desire for something canyon-like. I went looking for it and found you, in possession of the high ponytail. Not a Medusa, but a young, serious girl. You said, now I can't sleep without a pillow between my legs. I woke coupled with a sleeping form. Our bodies intertwined in the back of a rental car under the northern stars. You watched in horror as I, the sleeper, transformed before your eyes into a black snake. How did Leviathan make it up the logging road to this place? It will surely strangle us both, you said. But the sleeper doesn't take notice. You killed a fish earlier that day, then dancing, everything slow and asthmatic. At some point, realizing your mistake, its shiny head, its bulging eyes. House of Spring. House is a feeling. Peter Cully. Onto the sidewalk, they set out, tipping over yellow, bubbling drinks. The tables and chairs are arranged to carry them, torrentially downward signalling a shift in season that's oddly comforting somehow. As in the colonizing action of insects who in the exigencies of the season conserve energy because they know the season demands more. Take some, the abundance of corner stores, their wire racks that hold buckets of irises, tulips, peonies, delphiniums, any kind of spring flower. Fresh asparagus and radishes stuffed into drippy plastic bags, sold alongside lottery tickets and bus passes, who have never observed the lesser holidays. Statutory dates meant to break up the months between Christmas and Easter. It makes sense, Hit away, pilfered, resting up for a stunning trip in town. Another request for flowers. If you stop on your way home, the errand of cigarettes. Not for her, left with a lust for things to bring back the mercurial guest, all kinds of welcomes I made my way back. Where I had to be, I couldn't call home. It was an arrangement made for a mood tough, flexible, for only a select few who could be grazing on the tokens of sure time. I waited. I waited and spent $13 for which small town gossip in a coastal city makes stories told by relatives. And they exaggerate, of course. and It is only expected that a recent telling of a family secret finds murky ground to root in. From a hole in my pocket. From a hole in my pocket falls a cluster of change, except the loss. A loss is a loss, means carelessness or bad spending habits, any series of losses, if you're not trying to manage everything, if you aren't, and allow yourself fissure instead, then anything at all might happen to you. Wooch. More subtly, pigmentation in the inner corner, in the eye of the grandmother, contains shadows like veins. Stones photographed before fleeing the industrial heart, beating on a horse-drawn wagon, are stones containing the same shadow of the great-grandfather. But persistence of the impression doesn't make a history. What can be concealed with makeup can be tinged with that patrilineal trait mistook his purple eyeshadow applied badly. To abandon oneself to one's whims. Into an appearance further, sway in and swing out on account for checking, to abandon oneself to one's whims, originally bring under control, and later give in to the control of a surrendering, stop, discontinue a scheduled event, before completing the mark of the deserter and the insignia he himself has turned off. Pragmatics, lakeside and Okanagan journal, a personal thumbing, not actively sought, brushing hands over stacks of air-conditioned paper, nothing that is not simple, open, a kind of elegy, a kind of special bottoming, no problem stories, no letters will appear, no novels, that's all. This is the task of the speaker, to wait out further until the lake is taken into one's gills a gray-blue lake to sit by, another day a different lake, cerulean blue to swim. Berlin, 2011. By a running tap, a long sound suffered, from the courtyard where children are making sounds not limited to playing, this is a moment when such thoughts occurred, that there will never be a time rendered, when without a phone we press the buzzer to each other's apartments, their courtyards in a European city unuttered. But these long sounds could have suffered before, sitting in the kitchen of your new friend when we were too too cheap to leave the city, too stoned and too drunk for the Baltic shore. Beaches never seen, it became a trend. Wasted water, we stayed in the city. (coughs) Fountains, I have become myself, Dion Brand. Lie sleeping dog and pan to slow fountain. Dehydrated, although I haven't cried, a tear escapes from yawning. Water is pooling from the slush. Right out rubbing, rub out and squeak out, you drink water out of a glass, like you're trying to catch it, as lakes of petrified forest. If it hurts, why don't you cry? Cooked under a crust of time, plunging forward as your horizon, or the flat earth. Have you been pragmatic today? Have you been simple? A little bit. You, become, you became more so each day. Listen to this humming. It sounds like a machine's fan trying to cool itself. And that's it. OK, okay and this is just a short excerpt. Um, It was time to leave, she thought. It must be. Heather opted to stay one more week at the hospital because the prospect of returning to her home and returning to work seemed unbelievable. The man, whose name she wasn't sure of, gave her the final injunction to end her stay. Although Heather had her issues, as Alma called them, she didn't act dramatically different from how her friends did, or certainly Alma did, during their impulsive moments, similarly once down moments. This was made more clear to Heather when she compared herself to other people in the ward. Like this patient, who was probably the craziest person she'd ever met. Even though she didn't like using that terminology, she couldn't think of another word to describe him. Heather's impulsiveness sometimes gave her brilliant ideas. While at the hospital, she took an opportunity to press the record button on her phone when she invited another patient to take shelter from the rain in her truck so that they could both smoke a cigarette without getting drenched. Since that night, she had re-listened to the recording in private, as if there was some truth to decode in it. But then she showed it to friends, and they laughed so hard, they had to keep replaying certain parts, because they couldn't make out the dialogue over their laughter. Funny how a thing could seem serious in one context and absurd in another. This stuff happens to me a lot, he said. He was a slender man in his mid-thirties with long curly hair and wore a well-worn navy windbreaker. I'm finally like, oh yeah, I'll just try it again, and then they're doing it for your own protection, keeping you in places like this, and for myself. I was scared of those guys, like whoever those guys were. I have no clue who they were. What were you scared about? Wishing to be neighborly, she rolled down her window and called out to him, then leaned across the passenger seat and opened the door so he understood to come inside out of the rain. She had been at the ward for three weeks then, but she had her truck. She had a place to go that wasn't there and wasn't her apartment. She was in the parking lot by the ward, illuminated only by the light of her phone which she smuggled out each time she left the ward, when he came into view shielding himself from the downpour with a thin jacket. I don't really know. They probably put me in because I was paranoid, but they wanted to know why I was paranoid. Either maybe I was a criminal, or maybe I was actually some sort of genius, you know? Maybe they thought I was a con man. And basically, I've just been able to not care. And I have, like, he paused, not sure what he wanted to say. All the wit. He continued. And I was really smart. So I wouldn't talk. But my emotions came through my body language. That's how you could tell. And then somebody taught me body language. And I was like, I can use that, but I should probably be quiet about it and I didn't tell anybody about it for like four years. He counted the years on his fingers as he said this, as if he was calculating the effort of working on this quotidian task, which to him must have seemed like a huge feat. And I learned it all. I had mastered it, and I was able to get away with, without talking, banking other people's emotions. By just doing this stuff, because it was still true to me, I felt the emotions when I needed them and they came through in other patterns to make things easier for me. But then eventually you get hyper into it, and I guess I could have been a rap star or something. Right, said Heather, attempting to conceal her disbelief. She could only validate what he was explaining by encouraging him to continue speaking. If this guy was talking about his emotions, Heather assumed he must be referring to his body language as a kind of tell. But seeing him right next to her, his hand fidgeting, with the accumulated belongings and detritus in the passenger seat, it was more likely it made him seem more crazy to people, despite how composed he felt inside. But I didn't want to be I didn't want to be gangster. I didn't want to do anything criminal. He paused. And then I picked up smoking after my second joint. By joint, she realized he meant time in the hospital. And smoking was like too easy because it makes you forget or remember. It's all being breathed by someone else. And at least you know the trees love carbon. And then the trees breathe out oxygen. So like when they're moving, you see the slow release, right? Where it goes, like the slow moving camera. Whoa, time goes slow. It was, that was like two minutes. Heather glanced at the glowing digits on the dashboard. Just right now? A moment ago it felt like seven and that was like Two minutes, four minutes. Again, he used his fingers to count. Do you think we should be back by now, Heather asked? Yeah, I was like, before you started that, before I had all this, Heather assumed he was referring to the cigarette he was smoking as he heard the faint evidence of exhaling in the background. We had 12 minutes. Now I have exactly six minutes to get inside. So it took four, two, three, three and a half minutes, She tried to speak, but she couldn't think of anything to say. He looked apologetic then. You've seen the trees move like this, he held his hands up, in mind the shape of waves with his palms. Like back and forth? She nodded. And how the leaves grow and grow up like that? Yes, she said in agreement. It's actually because it's living, right, he said. That's the cool thing about plants. They know something, but they might be, like, asleep in some sense, because obviously they don't have eyes. He drew out the syllables, stressing the importance of his point. Their eyes, the plants, you know, are multi-dimensional eyes. The trees can see. Maybe they can even hear vibrations. A tree breathes in my knowledge when I blow the smoke out. At this, he stopped talking to examine his lit cigarette. Everything I say, he laughed and then paused again. I say because I'm like this. I think I'm a fire sign now. I don't know. It used to be an Aquarius, who's an air sign. But no one knows he's an air sign because Aquarius is the water giver. And it gave away all the good water. How'd you do that, she asked. He thought about it for some time. I read a lot of books. And I was praying a lot into the water and drinking it. And then eventually I would realize I could just give it to a plant. or like on the stones and cleanse the stones. That's how those white flowers have lived. The particular white flowers, Heather knew, were the flowers in the planter in the smoker's garden at the hospital. I was wondering if, like, maybe it was the cigarette ash? Because I didn't test it so much on the ones that were already dead. People were still throwing their butts in there all the time. Heather felt sorry for the flowers. I put a little bit of ash on the outside of, it's probably still there, and it turned yellow. Then I was like, well, if I put more rocks and took more rocks from a certain place, something good would happen. So I went to Galliano Island, and I put some rocks from the beach in an envelope to send to someone. He winced at the drag he took that had burnt down to the filter. Sorry, that was harsh. I probably shouldn't have had that last puff. I just wish it could last forever. Then he returned to his thought. The rocks all have their own orders. What orders, how could there be any order of any kind in what she was hearing, Heather thought. And each one has its own structure. It's the age of Aquarius, so the stars are becoming new based on what Aquarians want to know. wanted, and now it's based on what, I think, Libra, Scorpio, Gemini, and one other random one that doesn't normally have power. <laughs> Funny, Heather didn't think he was talking about something so juvenile as secret powers, he continued. It's sort of just like a Capricorn who's normally like really steady and he can be a worker, but really good at it. Heather didn't tell him she was a Capricorn, as arbitrary as it seemed to her. Like you're really good at getting people together to work on projects, but you're really good at doing it yourself. You have the plants. The plants are people. I can see them in that sense, and I can't explain it that well. But this is a time that you can expand your business and all this stuff that's been all all these changes and you have to learn the mistakes knowing that it wasn't your mistake. And it wasn't their fault, and then it was also the opposite because Capricorn, you fight by learning stuff from the devil's side, but the horns curl if you're actually a ram. This is a ram, referring to the truck. This is a dodge, so you dodge it. It's funny, Mm -hmm. there's so many different codes. I mean you can laugh, but what we should say is you can find a way to organize it so that maybe Like, I know this mess, like, this isn't a mess, this is perfectly clean. And if you're by yourself, you can get it all done, right? You know where everything is. You just got to maybe smoke less weed. (laughs) Do you still have dreams? She indicated that, yes, she still had dreams. Good. Never lose your dreams. Then she tried to convince him that they must get back before the curfew of nine o'clock. He rambled for a bit and then opened the truck door and climbed out into the rain. See you in a bit, said Heather. I'll see you, right? Yeah, she said. He carefully shut the door behind him, holding his jacket up over his head, as he hurried off through the rain-flooded parking lot. Three days later, Heather signed herself out and was discharged. Thanks.
1: about this alternate world called Plume that uh, Borges comes across to this encyclopedia um, and his explanation of the way that language is formed in that world was like super amazing to me and um, essentially it's a language that presupposes idealism um, as there are no nouns in this language only verbs, adjectives, and adjectives with an adverbial suffix so for example and this is a quote from the story. Um, they do not say moon, but rather round, airy light on dark, or pale orange of the sky, or anything like that. Um, so I wanted to see what it would be like to write something with no nouns in it. Um, and it was interesting. It became very bodily, as it, as it would. Um, so yeah, I'll just read it. And then I have, I think, seven poems after that. So, yeah, here we go. Um, there was a title, but I decided I didn't like it, so. <laughs> um, here we go. End of world, do zoom out from here. suffused pooled shimmering with more steaming. Was heavy needing or opposed? Like, just happened, really. Not heavenly, per se but so earthen pulled clean, perfected. Steamy, vibrating, ached long, and held untuned ticks inside, swishy overhead. It brined. It clipped. Now sonic looping over. Now it soaks. Now it seeps, aching. Honeyed aching, but also afloat. Ochre and flame of unexpected outwards is incoming. Sweepy and... Lilting. Trickle. Lilting. Swallowed. Attempt to transpire rather than breathe. Remember sloping above. Remember outwards. Like above. Just endless blackened repeating. Echoing against endless blackened repeating. Echoing against endless blackened repeating. Hush. Recall instead glow out of tiny open opening. Shift. blinking, Sweating inside wet and tremulous rose for so long. Fissuring, swish through minute lilting, no blinking now. Mountainous slip casting and flow. Weighted, yes. Deep, perhaps. But mostly just balmy. Less so now, decidedly. Filmy, not cinematic. Raised upwards to draw down to rise up. Heated, steaming. A continual glowing and on streaming, now downwards, away from upheld by squared, intense, and, and hammered. Now downwards, through pull deemed irrelevant, dark, unknown, and at some sense curious, But ignorant and afraid, or afraid and ignorant. Swivel back and glowing hot, now the lone civil spit, smelling grey around its spat. Drizzle cakey, rushed peeling, rubbing out wrinkled, wetted. Damp inside damp, transpiring. Sudden passing through, acclimatized. Porous tightening, flattened, filmy slapping. Kinda icky, pass on and roll through, melting out now. Stretch out sideways, hum, anchored framing, inside drying, eventually to deepen, flatten. Except sudden roundness, the most circular, solid, hovering, weighted down, uncountably massive. Humming thick through passing, absolutely brimming. So hard to name, naming here is irrelevant. Coiled and coiling, immovable, writhing, curled. Zoom out. No, depart from here. Momentarily now. Central and infinite of any spiraling. Transitory. Pass, pass, passing. Immeasurable, but so fabled, so plain. Drift to sleep. Recognize pink-orange glowing again over again. Feel drawn, drawn long. Heady cyclonic shift upwards, vertically so, pass through fluttering orange, open biggest glowering gray, squinting in solar banal. Recognize present staring from both, presently doubled and otherwise else even newer, stranger still, but first zoom out, whirling, outer delineating, less gravitational pulling, zoom out, almost all out, unsure, paused, Disengage, attempt to transpire rather than breeze. Breezy turned back, mirrored, and mirrored opposite. Recall yelling had been all along until presently, gruff and belligerent outside, biggest glowing gray, all dark, knocking in. Had been frightened but too deep sleeping. At rise now, there lies, present but dead, dead but staring. Pace around, whirl among whirl. Go on now, get up and walk away. No use. Shift. See clenched in, holding small. Pry small from clenched, holding. Rectangular black, crackled dull shine, turning. Crackled dull black, angular but soft. Heavy but not so. Sudden vibrating glowing, slippy false shimmering, lighted from behind but not within, and colored brighter than any other, smarting. Listen to tinny, hollow, chattering, infinite, with little scribbling everywhere and upturned speaking. Slippery, seems to crisply denote weariness from longing. Strange, but not unfamiliar, could encompass entire other world, rather seems to. Alien, sadder than currently. Scribbling all jumbled and intuitively misinformed, sad, implacable, destructive. Recall very long passing, having conversed with unsure conjuring of alternate positing, among hushed glib above crystalline on streaming outside in dark, long passing, or recently, whispering about potential, mumbling about blue, blue, gray, green, and covered scene, through slippy false shimmering, talking about barren collective commenting, ripped out inconsiderate big old fatty doubled over shuddering, scribbling falling forever upwards, Put back and clenched. Step aside for else to clamber in, changing. Naming comes closer now. Naming pulls away. and outwards whirling generates or disfigures. Other whirl, shift over. Look out, each shift blossoming to represent another zoom. Little end of whirl, do zoom out and change some. Sweep deadened away, begin anew. Uh, Okay, and then I have seven poems. Um, Most of them are spelled. Anyway, here we go. These have nouns in them. Uh, No, I, no me. But in the edges of this vessel, there are so many things to run up against. Wall, bearing weight and the rare balance. Table, stained by the heat of mugs of eye bright. Media, a silver fish wedged between the eyes and sockets. Not my eye, mind you. No eye, no me, remember? Mind that, always. Mind that always clicks to the next while hearing, I mean incorporating. Threads of anguish regarding death camps over there, and history's death camps right where I slouch. Down the stairs, down the street, over the bridge, over the border, over the edge. Of the nail of the fingertip, the border guard patrolling my cuticle. No I, no me, no mine, I'll give it all away. This health, this body, this impression of borders, for some inch of truth around the circuit, my arms crossed or open. I mean I know, no I know me, so it's just an abstract one's finger ticking out the number of hits it might take to say, say one thing that could be nailed down as a sure one, or even just one sum that could be felt out as a pure one. <sighs> silently which came first the misery or the wound beyond the egg blue wall a bird chirps and it was 1991 coming to find me my mother walks along some avenue in dessau building my body and stepping among the bricks my father double checks the blueprints of the rowboat of his mind slips into bookstores with shelves half empty and scores a note card with a singular line every afternoon we were hanging there on stilts or from hooks, waiting to depart. The back aches. The knees are on fire, a glow of love setting this brigade of bones in a hoop of stones. I grow alive in the space among these pierced ghosts, all within earshot now. (laughs) Um, This one's called Blushing Rat God Crownland. I don't know violence, but in any exigency, do we all not feel a code sliding between our pores as someone runs for shelter or to find the kit? A force exemplified by the whooshing liquid sound. You haven't eaten, you stood too fast, you go down. Here we are, frozen in time and it's propaganda. There's a past we desire to be dislocated from shoulder to shoulder in small armies. It, that thing, do we all not feel a code? A pain that walks itself down history's veins. A code like a known image, intrinsic symbol. Slippery as a rat god, slopping in cartoon shoes, sweating this day, again, again. The background slides by unnoticed, again. Throbbing over and over and over, it marches, so it blitzes. Cap dancing, past into present, the desert into rainforest, an encampment into your cubicle and the ocean into hell. It's the blushing rat god crown land oozing through your pores, where everybody's still present and everybody's still here. (laughs) (sighs) Uh, This one's called Cherry Juice He's so boring but so covered in charms Blink, 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 blink Catch him walking to and from the cherry house Large boxes of product held between hairy hands and thin hips I could follow him Under brush it was green sleeves ripening, red rather pink Rather the impossible color of sockeye cleaved open and held against the light. Pink, orange, red. Pink, orange. Rubbing miracle grow. A glow that could, very well, last forever. A couched embankment along a river of spit. A grin, 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 grin. A very humid blister to spin around, to hiss at, so hard your teeth fall out of your face. Show me that smile. I'm up here, in the trees, scatterbrain. So love like this is dizzyingly stupid. Cerebral prickings, a thorny brush combing out snags of hair. Will you shove that red herring down my throat again? I'll bet you could, and when you don't, I'll pass on you. A simple gloat with soap flakes on a mountain top where a glacier might be sliding toward the orchard the frozen stones glimming out from frozen flesh. Uh, Here's another one. On days when you will not, or cannot, look at yourself, look elsewhere, don't look at yourself, look here. It is something to see. Go along the hall and draw up the shade, and feel childlike at the window, and remember there are wind chimes and endless voices speaking in the mind. So keep latched the hinge, tap twice the pane, wave past the procession, falling westward, shrouded and swaying along your street. Okay, there's two more. This one's called Tokyo in February. Clinging to earth and then flying away, like unhinged bird wing, bird mind seething, far-flung overcoat and slippers trimmed at the ankle's hinges. Then, after a blast of heat, closed-toed shoes scratching along the impeccably raked gravel of the lower highways, I could count the bridges in either, no, both directions. Three, and three steps farther, three more revealed the valves that shape a circulation, singing likewise to each, each sluggish engine passing, that which seems to encase something haunting, or at least consciousness without sentience. Briding an electric wind on wings and a sleeve and the eerie resemblance of suburbs to cemeteries under this day's setting sun and the inescapable roundness of every sound, I'm gathering it in, pinning at the hips and folding what could be the collar back, The flesh is singed only less than a millimeter in. My pretend privation holds up a steep and narrow archway. Above and of both feet there is a pump, golden. It binges on whole roast yams rolling under glow lamps and tarps blowing in the pissing wind. I intend to get drunk, but it's the lights here that are the drug. The last one is called Clay Body. Grey velvet butter rub. A brain. Could be yours or mine. A large smear on canvas. And jimmied in the folds, there is memory. Pry it out or walk right in. Um, Clay Body. Young prick wearing a sports bra in humid September and laughing at the oscillating fan branded Likewise. It's head shaky and blowing hot air, just like the rest of us. Flighty, flittering, insane aerial acrobatics, just to lump on. I needed bird-tip, plain, root-tongue, old-growth more than you think you need that fish-scale dress. So, do you want to really hold court? Scowl at the judge and bang the gavel? Brim with conviction? Walk out a free woman? Don't rise. Semper Sursum, reach for the stars? No, you dig. A hole the size of the life you might want to inhabit and get lost there, go blind. You, your gut, and the mud all flinging themselves at one another, which are each other. These clay bodies and scatological underworld pressing uncountable molds till one fits and the only one that will might be your grave and I find this to be a comfort. Agents of youth forever, blow me. Clouds air, atmosphere, flimsy winds. It's hot air on a young prick. As above, so below. But celestial bodies have nothing on this whole. This ancient-wormed home of of three crones, a small pedestal, and infinity's bacteria. So in my will, I'll wager for a shift. Stick in the mud. There's seed to be sown. The mind is a shaping. It's a cavity of molten stone. Clay body, clay bodies, body of clay, clay body, clay bodies, cranium gray. Mm
0: artist. His debut novel, A Matter of Life or Death or Something, Douglas and McIntyre 2012, was long listed for the International IMPAC Dublin Literary Award and prompted CBC books to name him one of ten Canadian writers to watch. It was translated into Spanish and Romanian. He's currently living in Vancouver and working on something else. (laughs) Ben.
4: like really cold and depressing lately and it's cool that you're all here on Sunday night at this hour um, yeah I'm gonna read two things uh, the first one's short and the second one is longer um, this first thing is um, kind of a memoir I guess I, I like it's kind of fiction it's kind of memoir but it's written in the third person for some reason and uh, it's I've been working on kind of a series of like Trying to recount all the times in my life that I thought I was probably about to die, <laughs> and I don't know like why I'm doing that project yet, but I've just been working on it slowly, so we'll see if it goes anywhere. Anyway, this is one. It's called Four Men. He'd been beaten only once, as a 22-year-old, on the short walk home from his then girlfriend's apartment. She'd asked him not to stay that night, which he'd resigned to read as a small rejection predictive of an imminent slash eventual total rejection, when the three young men he'd been attempting for four blocks to convince himself were not following and gaining on him had suddenly appeared over his shoulder, twice as close to him since his last shoulder check, and who were indeed then running running fast toward him as he began running in a manner he'd literally never previously run, slightly inebriated from pre-rejection wine thighs pulsing numb with exertion and epinephrine, and had made it to within 100 meters of his own apartment before they'd thrown him to a lawn and kicked him hard, one, in the stomach, two, in the chest, three, in the head as he lay prone, crying out in fear and confusion, generally attempting to communicate his complete lack of intention of fighting back against three huge men in the night, and four, in the head once more before one of them asked whether he had an electronic music player, which in that year had retailed for 349.99 US dollars, and he said he did, which caused the men to void his backpack's contents on the damp grass, and, after pawing through them for what felt like at least two minutes, to ask where exactly in the fuck the device was, to which he apologized, saying he must have left it at home. And the men had begun, from what little he could see of them from the ground, mostly in far periphery, through the eye that was not already swelling shut, to appear impatient and or restless, with one already urging the others to disperse. And with a size 13 boot, another kicked him five in the jaw and grabbed his wallet before they disappeared and were finally gone, out of sight, even as he got himself kneeling and eventually sitting upright. Afterward, after he'd gathered his things back into his bag, after a young woman he'd met at a party had come running from what was apparently her apartment just across the street, cursing and asking whether he was okay. After she brought him into a living room and phoned an ambulance, he was fairly sure he didn't need. After they'd gotten the blood to clot and he'd phoned his then-girlfriend who'd appeared right away in tears and with an irrational fear the incident might have somehow been her fault. After three hours in the early morning, morning emergency rooms bolted down chairs, only to be prodded and squeezed and told he didn't seem concussed. He would find himself forever unable to describe his assailant's faces which had been obscured by sweatshirts and the perceptual distortion that had descended as soon as he'd begun sprinting. And it seemed to rob the visible world of specificity, to decrease the the scope of the available environment to only the terrain between his body and his apartment, and to rob him of the ability to encode detailed memory. Though the police officers had stood in the acquaintance's living room, prompting him with finely focused questions, he'd altogether failed to come up with enough information on which to conduct a search, Nor had he particularly wanted to provide anything false slash imagined slash compelled with which they might go on to justify who knew what type of force. And had immediately doubted each of his answers as soon as the officer had committed it to her notepad. And from then on, whenever he was asked to tell the story of the beating for family or friends, he would find himself depicting them simply as three large young men who'd likely badly needed money and who hadn't been afraid to extract some from one of the college students who'd elected to rent apartments in the old rundown houses only blocks from their neglected housing project by whatever means necessary. Though his wallet would have turned out to hold only cards and receipts. That is, in his memory, the men would henceforth only appear as the projected outlines of faceless humanoids making up one side of a fucked-up equation it would feel vulgar to ever take personally. Not unlike the way the men, he would suppose, had seen and would forever remember the skinny figure who'd walked quicker and quicker ahead of them as they'd approached. So, it's kind of written <laughs> after Kafka thing a little bit, but that doesn't matter at all. <laughs> 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 Nothing does. Uh, this, is, this, is this is gonna be the first scene from a novel I've been working on for uh, about three years. I just finished it as a thesis at UBC for my MFA. Now I'm trying to like get people to put it out into the world. Um, so I chose the beginning because I can give you absolutely no introduction. <laughs> uh, so this is chapter 1.1. 1. 1. An American team of web developers had two years prior released a free mobile dating <coughs> application that aided single and non-monogamously, non-monogamously committed people in finding other nearby single slash non-committed people whom they'd otherwise likely never organically encounter. And via this application's white interface, and in a matter of two days, a quote, male, unquote, user and a quote, female, unquote, user became attracted to each other's images, began exchanging jokes and flirtations, traded phone numbers, and agreed to purchase alcohol together at a bar approximately halfway between their two apartments. Mm -hmm. Believing himself to be running late, the 27-year-old male half-jogged to the streetcar and hurried to the bar only to arrive over five minutes early. He stood squinting, short of breath, into all corners of the crowded and dark bar, and did not register the presence of anyone resembling the female he was scheduled to meet. That should say young woman. I'm trying to use female only as the adjective or character name in this male and female. Sorry, it's still all in flux. But I'm trying to quote from the dating applications language. Which was the decision? Anyway, whatever, fuck it. The female female he was scheduled to meet. He had already consumed a glass of cheap bourbon on ice in his apartment, having ushered the slowly diluting drink from bedside table to washroom counter to kitchen table as he sped through his preparatory rituals. But he felt now, as he claimed two stools near the enormous and clean window, that he was in dire need of additional alcohol. He was not certain of the etiquette regulating the purchase of drinks before the arrival of one's online date but estimated that the anticipated female wouldn't much care about such a thing. In their mobile interactions, she'd so far seemed to exhibit an eminently relaxed attitude and had typed the word, quote, chill, unquote, as an adjective at multiple turns in the conversation. He approached the bar and asked for a glass of the house red, and as he waited, he typed a message to the female via his phone, bragging about having beat her to the bar. It was Monday, August 4th, in the year 2014 CE. While walking along the sidewalk of a semi-commercial street in the most populous city in Canada, the 28-year-old female typed a message to the male she was seven minutes late to meet, exclaiming that she would arrive at the bar in three minutes and that she was often bad at time management. She had consumed a large glass of lukewarm white wine in her apartment and had been entirely physically prepared to embark on the date and arrive on time, even having wrapped herself in her off-white faux fur jacket but had then laid atop her bed for nearly 10 minutes consulting the newsfeed of her social networking account and repetitively refreshing her email inbox via her laptop computer, probably as she knew, stalling because of a semi-conscious aversion to the disappointment potential of yet another unfortunate day, before scrambling out the door without having left herself enough time for the walk. As she neared the bar, she encountered a relatively new female friend whom she hadn't properly seen in two months walking toward her and, As had also happened the previous time she'd run into this friend, she found herself drawn into an expanding and expressive conversation about her work and her friend's work, the former's as a magazine intern, the latter's as a gallery clerk and occasional curator, and about the exploits of the mutual female friend who'd originally introduced them. Eventually, the female rolled her eyes and explained that she was running late for an online date, and she was confronted by the idea that what she would truly like to do, what she probably should do, would be to notify the online mail that she simply wasn't coming and to accompany her vibrant friend wherever she was headed so that they might share a bottle of wine and finally allow their conversation to approach its full dimensions. But she heard herself instead <coughs> issuing a promise that one day in the near future she would contact her friend <coughs> to arrange just that. Behind the dim bar's window, the male had already consumed half his wine when he received a text message from his closest friend, whom he'd earlier informed of his date, who asked whether the mail was having fun. He answered that his anticipated date was eleven minutes late and that currently he felt, quote, nervous and pathetic, unquote. His mm-hmm. friend urged him to attempt to enjoy himself and claimed that the male, quote, deserved, unquote, to go on a satisfying date. At the very least, she claimed it might give him, quote, something dumb, unquote, to write about. <laughs> Next came a message from the female who exclaimed that she was very sorry and that she'd seen him in, and that she'd see him in three minutes. He immediately replied that there was no problem offering a tiny yellow illustration of a smiling and blushing face. And gulping at his wine, he opened the mobile dating application to take a last glance at the female's online dating profile before he would encounter her in, as he still sometimes thought of it, quote, real life, unquote. (laughs) In the female's first photo, her eyes hailed the viewer directly, and her mouth was slightly open, forming a half-smile, or a smile in progress, frozen on black and white film. Her well-lit face was framed in close-up against the white wall and she seemed to the male extremely photogenic and attractive, with a small but detectable hint of sexuality in her eyes. He suspected the image to be a top-tier selection from a photo shoot she'd been asked or paid to participate in. In her second photo, she was seen from behind, her long, straight, light brown hair and beige jacket framed in the bottom left corner of the image, beyond her the gray sand and dark water of an unfamiliar beach on a windy afternoon. In her third photo, she somewhat aggressively held a half-consumed slice of pepperoni pizza to her mouth, standing over the remainder of the large pizza in its open box, wearing a blue jumpsuit flecked with white paint. In the fourth, she stood beside her single-speed bicycle before a brick wall. The bottom half of her hair dyed a bright green. In the fifth photo, she stood to the left of two other young women, one of whom the male self-loathingly found slightly more attractive than the female, and the formerly-dressed three all stood with their arms around one another, making what seemed like ironically overcalculated facial gestures as the female held her phone at chest level in her right hand, taking the group photo via the mirror of a public washroom. (laughs) Less than five seconds after the male exited the mobile dating application, he raised his head to see a young woman reaching toward the door who was without a doubt his date. Whenever she arrived to an online date with a virtual stranger, the female's primary social fear was that she wouldn't recognize her date in the flesh, but would instead walk the length of the dark room many times, squinting at the face and eyes of each man and feeling totally clueless as to which eyes and face she had shown up for, and in the terrible process would overlook the correct man several times over before he finally called out to her, an insult from which it would then be impossible to recover. But this never did happen. Invariably, she would recognize her date at once. He always sat alone, looking down into his phone. The female had once read, that human minds created detailed and lasting impressions of newly encountered others in less than one-tenth of a second. And sure enough, in the instant she beheld this young man, she'd been scheduled to meet. And as he stood from his stool to offer an awkward hug, it seemed that some part of her was already limiting the parameters of their future together. For one, he couldn't possibly be the 5'10 his dating profile had alleged, <laughs> if he five nine, though she wished she didn't care. She apologized for how late she was, and the mail insisted it wasn't a problem, admitting he'd accidentally been early. The bar had previously been a neighborhood pharmacy, and its young owners had appropriated certain pharmaceutical elements into its own aesthetic when they'd taken over the lease. The old pharmacy's redundant lightbox sign remained intact above the bar's exterior, and above certain tables sat recessed shelves displaying, displaying antique pill and chemical bottles with browned labels, some featuring cork stoppers, which the female found irresponsibly bourgeois slash nostalgic and aesthetically repulsive, though she'd (laughs) spent money here several times before and had seemingly always forgotten these features of the bar between visits. Draping her jacket over the stool beside the male's, she asked what type of wine he was drinking. It gave her some wary comfort to know that he couldn't wait until her arrival to drink alcohol. She figured he might therefore be feeling at least as anxious or tentative as she was. She apologized again, explaining that she'd just run into a friend of hers who'd launched with her into an extended street-side conversation, recognizing, even if she offered him this explanation, that she was falsely reframing what had been an endearing encounter with a friend as an urban annoyance that should account for her lateness. She said she was going to order a drink and slipped over to the bar to do so. The male looked into and semi-consciously manipulated his phone, although it presently offered him no new or relevant social information. He experienced the familiar circulatory acceleration and nervous stimulation of mild anxiety. Over the past two days, he had not been diligent about curbing his expectations of this online female. Twice he even semi-consciously imagined the two of them in various phases of a future romantic relationship, waking naked and entwined in an impressive bed and scrambling eggs together, drinking coffee on a curb somewhere outdoors, attending a dinner party with members of their social circle and laughing about how they would found their enduring love and. Partnership via a mobile dating application, eventually moving in together, or even moving to a coastal American city with perpetual sun and gently swaying palms, an environment in which, he'd imagined, he would soon be moved to take her hands and inform her that she'd saved his life. And yet it had seemed, the instant they made eye contact, (laughs) that all his hope in the anticipated her had perhaps vanished. What was it about the female? Who was he to presume? An escalating non-attraction to her based only on 20 seconds of small talk. He watched her as she stood gesturing at the bartender. He certainly found her attractive, but what was it? Her voice? Her rigid posture? Were there really postures he found more or less attractive than others? Were people supposed to find one another attractive immediately? She was quite tall, likely taller than him, he estimated, but this wasn't it either. In a moment this strange person would pay for whatever she'd ordered, and bring it over to their adjacent seats by the window and proceed to ask about his life and to tell him of hers. What would the male say to her? As she stood waiting for the bartender to prepare her drink, the female did not look toward the male she was scheduled to meet and speak with, but rather concentrated a casual gaze on the densely clustered spires of jewel-toned bottles against the bar's far wall, aware that the male might be sneaking intermittent glances at her standing profile and that creating semi-distant eye contact with him this this early into their date might appear to radiate an intimacy or an excitement she was not at this point comfortable with appearing to radiate. She felt as if she currently appeared considerably, considerably attractive. She tried, anyway, and had even put on a necklace, though she could never be certain how anyone really perceived her. When presented with her drink, she asked its price and held her wallet. But the bartender offered to begin a tab for her by gesturing toward the seated male and asking whether she was, quote, with him, unquote. With internal reluctance, she simply answered in the affirmative. But she would go over and sit next to the male, she knew, and would talk with him. Some of the best romances allegedly grew slowly. She'd certainly never experienced it, only heard it proclaimed every so often by friends she viewed as more emotionally mature than she was. (laughs) And it was true that some of her favorites of life's offerings had been acquired tastes. But this was a young man, not a coffee or a bitter vegetable. She did find him attractive, if in an idiosyncratic and slightly disheveled way, and there were likely certain things about him to figure out in life. There couldn't be much harm in having one drink beside a stranger, she told herself. He'd seemed a decent conversationalist throughout their mobile exchange, and if this proved not to be the case, she'd merely declined to order another drink, walk home alone, and watch television on the internet, though she'd hoped tonight she might get to have sexual intercourse. She approached her jacket-draped stool, placed her whiskey on the ledge attached beneath the window, and sat next to the male. As the female pulled up her stool, the male asked whether she was okay with sitting where they currently sat, aware that sitting next to one another and staring the same direction out a window was not the archetypal seating arrangement for a first date, and in the same breath he, nonsensically he felt, apologized for there not being any available tables. The female (coughs) claimed that where they were was, quote, fine, unquote, in a vocal tone that somehow seemed to threaten his composure. He felt unsure of what to say, and asked whether the female was drinking whiskey. She smiled and confirmed it, and he emitted a quick ascending then descending whistle from his lips that immediately felt to him to be a sound he would not typically make. (laughs) Their view through the window was of an early autumn sky approaching what felt to the male like a slightly premature orange, occluded by two-story shops and a low-rise apartment building. On the double paned glass were half-bright images of the bar's warm yellow light bulbs, dark reflections of their faces in motion, each haloed by a fainter double of each same face a few centimeters to the left. The male began to recount for the female the story of his transit to their date, that is, how he first felt himself to be prepared well ahead of time, but had inexplicably become late, and yet finally had somehow arrived early. But nearing the end of his story, he became overly conscious of what he saw as his poor verbal storytelling abilities. Recognizing also that this anecdote provided very little t- in terms of traditionally entertaining story material, though its three-act structure seemed anatomically correct. And so he hurried through the anecdote's conclusion and attempted a quick segue, asking how the female's day had been. The female worked an internship at a high-profile Canadian general interest in literary magazine. A fact which the two had argued. She had a trigger warning for the. A fact which the two had already discussed via the dating application, though not in great detail, and which she suspected had likely made up a large part of the unspoken motivation for their date. That is, she suspected that on some level the male, who allegedly wrote fiction, or was it poetry, she couldn't currently recall, had viewed, slash, was viewing their date partly as a potentially fruitful networking opportunity. As she recounted her somewhat frustrating Monday for him, branching off now and then to fill in background information about the office's general atmosphere, the female noticed herself sighing frequently, and midway through her date narrative, She already recognized the onset of a familiar anxious sensation, the tedious futility of explaining at length the highlights of her life to a person she was already fairly sure she didn't truly wish to incorporate into that life. It always felt to her like stacking brick after brick in an improvised wall of charm which she knew she would soon, probably this same evening, kick down. In the first photo of the male's dating profile, he lay in a long plastic patio recliner wearing a t-shirt printed all over with an optically elusive tessellation of black and white birds, He displayed a bashful expression and was seemingly caught in a moment of candid whimsy, presumably at least partially intoxicated. In his second photo, he sat near the border between the grass and sand of a secluded beach, appearing to laugh. He wore a red bathing suit and lacked a shirt, and his shoulders and arms appeared representative of a body type the female was generally attracted to, slight with visible, though limited, muscle mass, but not gaunt. In his third photo, he stood on asphalt near a taller male friend the two looking somber, with a neon-lit carousel glowing behind them out of the twilight. The fourth photo had clearly been taken by the male himself via a laptop computer. He lay in bed, buttoned to his nose in a denim parka, and his hair appeared much longer than in any other photo. In his final photo, he walked beside another attractive male friend, the two on either side of the yellow line dividing a rural road in the summer night, lit only by the camera's powerful flash. Both young men appearing giddy with summer camaraderie, and perhaps again intoxication. When she told him via the mobile dating application that it was a nice photo, the male thanked her and stated that its two subjects and its photographer had all been intensely under the influence of psilocybin mushroom tea when it had been taken three years prior, which had led them to trade anecdotes about their experiences with various recreational drugs. One feature <coughs> of the male's profile, which had initially been attractive to the female and which had motivated her to select yes, regarding wanting to talk with him or not, had been the fact that Unlike her, he'd actually taken the time to provide a small dis- descriptive paragraph about himself and had done a much better job of it than most she'd seen, outlining hobbies and preferences while maintaining to while managing to avoid sentimentality and earnestness, seeming to convey via subtext various various data regarding his sense of humor, level of irony and sarcasm, and general demeanor. She hadn't been on a date with someone younger than herself in over four years. He had also been one of only four men on the of the over 1,200 she'd so far viewed on the application, who had advertised himself as a, quote, feminist, unquote, and who had seemed to operate with a decent contemporary definition of the word, which had caused her to feel simultaneously curious and suspicious. Lately, she'd encountered far too many allegedly feminist men in her social circles, who had, in her opinion, mainly er erected contemporary feminist facades in order to distract from their private acts of contemporary misogyny and entitlement. But something in the rest of the male's cheeky paragraph had remained endearing, and she'd elected to attempt to view it as evidence of an underlying sincerity within him, although it might merely be an affectation of sincerity. Who could say And when he digitally greeted her, and they'd begun to exchange messages, she'd momentarily regretted her own self-descriptive paragraph, in which she'd provided only an ironic joke that mocked the alleged disarming attractiveness of abdominal muscles. The male's issue with where they sat was that in order to properly interface the male and the female constantly had to swivel their revolving stools anywhere between 45 and 90 degrees toward one another, an arrangement which he increasingly found, especially as he grew more intoxicated, physically challenging to the almost stoic brand of kind nonchalance he typically attempted to project at new romantic-slash-sexual prospects. The arrangement therefore left their drinks not between them but beside them on the ledge which meant that the male continually had to swivel slightly away from the female to pick up his glass, swivel toward her again to reestablish eye, o- con- eye contact. Then, each time he'd ingested some of the drink's contents, to swivel back once more to set it down, all the while sustaining his side of the conversation's rhythm and dynamic, and he sensed that all of this swiveling and conspicuous drinking and turning of his body and head somehow caused him to appear far less nonchalant from the female's perspective <laughs> than, he <laughs> than he felt he ought to appear and intermittently he found it difficult to follow what the female was saying this was compa- compounded by the stool's lack of lumbar support which caused the male t- which caused the male not typically one to exhibit traditionally good posture to lean his left elbow on the ledge and prop his head on his left palm in order to obtain any relief from the strain in his back muscles the male had a habit of frequent slouching I already said that. Okay. But even this degree of sludge seemed to him entirely inappropriate on a first date, and he, wondered it might betray, he worried it might betray his true level of felt commitment to or excitement about their date, especially since his intuition seemed to insist that the female was having a significantly better time than he was. He read it in the cadences of her sentences and the tone of her voice, the unpredictability of her smiles and eye rolls, a mannerism which somewhat painfully reminded him of his most recent ex-girlfriend, as well as the eye contact he sent, he seen, sorry. as well as the eye contact she seemed so effortlessly to maintain as she spoke of her frustrations with her supervising editor at the magazine. The male felt that the female was enjoying herself, and already he began to experience a mild stress about how he would, at some future point have to let her down gently with respect to their romantic potential. He felt grateful they'd opted to me for alcohol rather than caffeine. It haunted him that the female was so clearly intelligent and funny and beautiful and possessed of compatible politics and taste, but that, as he listened to her speak and as he contributed his own speech, he occasionally became aware of the finite nature of his conscious time on their planet, as if he felt he were being abstractly robbed of the seconds and minutes of this night of his, the sense, though there was no data to support it, of having somewhere else he was supposed to be with someone else the faceless other victim of some cosmic scheduling error. He wondered, for what felt like the millionth time, what exactly it was that caused human beings to become attracted and attached to one another. He thought also, with frustration, of his ex-girlfriend, and of how staggeringly attracted slash attached he still felt to her and to his memory of her, of how strongly he currently wished he were on a first date with her though their relationship had deteriorated until it was mutually unbearable, and they'd mutually agreed to break up over two months prior. At a certain point, the female concluded a movement of their conversation, and asked the male how his writing had lately been going, and if he was currently working on anything specific. His wine had disappeared some minutes ago, he saw. He asked in a somewhat whimsical tone, he felt, whether the female would mind if he ordered another drink before answering, immediately asking whether she'd like another herself. She asked that she'd have another double of the same whiskey she'd nearly finished and thanked the male. At the bar, he ordered two doubles of the female's chosen whiskey on ice, and the bartender said he'd bring them over. The male then headed to the bar's, quote, male, unquote, washroom. Though he only needed to urinate, he entered one of the two walled toilet stalls, not being one to much enjoy the performative aspect of a urinal, even in an unoccupied washroom, and stood unhooking his belt. He attempted to recall how long it had been since he'd last had anything published, and decided it must now be nearly two and a half years. Bracket. It had been 29 months since The Mail had published his first collection of short stories with an independent Canadian publisher, a slim book he'd at that time felt proud of, in which he'd watched sell barely 100 copies and earn one review, 200 words in a sidebar column in the country's national conservative newspaper, which he'd read as overwhelmingly negative and dismissive, which had led him to decide that the man who'd written it, a middle-aged Canadian novelist who the male had never heard of, must be a generally miserable person." End when his bladder was empty, he briefly remained standing in the stall, manipulating his phone. Almost half an hour earlier, his closest friend had requested further information on his date's progress, so he crafted a somewhat melancholic-slash-tentative reply, though he did claim to be having some small degree of fun. As he sent the message, he received an email from a popular social change website asking him to sign an online petition aiming to stop the chlorine bombing of Syrian children. The male marked the email as, quote, unread, unquote, washed his hands and dried them with brown paper towel. The female had been manipulating her own phone when the bartender speechlessly placed two double whiskeys on ice on the ledge before her. A friend she'd run into earlier had sent a message semi-ironically asking for the percentage chance that the female would be, quote, ax-murdered, unquote, tonight. She predicted, the, she predicted the figure at, quote, 10%, unquote, and her friend immediately asked what, after the chances of the female ending up in what she referred to as the, quote, bone zone, unquote. She smiled, looking at her phone and swallowing a gulp of whiskey. She considered how the type of jokes and responses her friends drew from her differed subtly but significantly from those this male did. She had this thought frequently and for many years, that in television and film and even most literature, human characters usually tended to interact with one another from behind some consistent set of operative assumptions and behaviors which comprised their quote, character, unquote, unless perhaps they became socially disarmed by a strong romantic urge for another character or underwent a psychological-slash-emotional-narrative transformation and conspicuously acted strangely. Yet, in life, she felt, everyone everyone she interacted with caused her to constantly act strangely and to appear strange to herself. Each new person she encountered seemed to elicit from her some new alien persona, a distinctly whole and other character which she became henceforth compelled to perform for them. In the presence of some, her performed self seemed to her grotesque strangers, With others, they were more subtly altered versions of whom she generally presumed herself to be. Those people toward whom she felt maximal kinship and comfort seemed simply to be those in whose presence her performed self felt closest to her own self-image. Yet even in those closest relationships, there were always certain gaps, certain adjustments she would unconsciously or semi-consciously make, however small. And the cumulative burden of these discrepancies, the extent to which she felt misunderstood, only ever faded when she scheduled herself time to be alone, to walk the streets listening to her current favorite music, to read, to take herself out for dinner, to perform only for her own amusement. As always, the female had no immediate conclusions regarding how to remedy this problem or whether it was in fact a true problem and not merely a fundamental human experience. The female then received notification that she matched with another male user on the mobile dating application. And she quickly skimmed his profile to gauge his level of attractiveness, not exceedingly high, before responding to her friend's second question with, quote, 50%, unquote. Before the female, sorry, before the male returned from the washroom, the newly matched male had already asked the female what was, quote, up, unquote, that night. And she, briefe- <laughs> and she briefly considered stating that she was on a mediocre online date, last, laughed to herself, but typed nothing. He then asked how she paid rent in the most populous city in Canada. And she typed that she currently worked for a magazine like, quote, every self-respecting liberal arts girl, unquote, and asked what this male did, then closed the application, unsure of why she'd bothered to respond. Not even two years prior, she still hadn't even, <laughs> Not even two years prior, she still hadn't owned a mobile phone which could access the internet, she recognized, staring toward the hallway leading to the washrooms. And now here she sat, apparently, an embodied iteration of a stereotype Unable to stop touching and staring into the thing. Through the window, she watched a woman walk past with a tiny dog on a leash, and she found herself estimating that this woman had so far had a particularly difficult but strangely fulfilling life. It was then that she sensed the slight weight in her eyelids and the familiar delay in her sensory perception, signaling that she'd recently crossed the threshold into discernible intoxication. That's